Hello, world, and welcome to the Storytellers Podcast. My name is Lawrence Cohen, and my goal for this podcast is simple. I've always been fascinated by the storytelling process and that oh-so-blurry line that separates the artist from their art. Every session, I intend to interview a new and exciting storyteller, share with you their unique voice, and find out just what does drive them to create the crazy stories we all love and enjoy. Today, I spent some time with music composer and author Jamie Carpenter as he regaled his fascinating tale. Trust me, folks, you'll want to keep listening. If you have the uncontrollable urge to check out more episodes of this podcast and samples of the artist's work, don't forget to visit www.auroralightworks.blogspot.com. Just in case you need help spelling that out, that is Aurora, as in the Northern Lights Aurora Borealis, A-U-R-O-R-A. Light, as in Let There Be Light, L-I-G-H-T, and Works, W-O-R-K-S, dot blogspot.com. And now on with the show. All right, uh, Jamie, hi. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Why don't you introduce yourself? All right, sure. I'm Jamie Carpenter. I live in Los Angeles. I'm 34 years old. I'm a composer and music supervisor and record producer. Um, I mean... That's that's sort of you know what it says on my card. Um, I'm really a musician and a guy who just loves you know the creation process of art, and in a broad sense. Cool. Um, I thought we could break the ice with a uh, with a cheerful story. I thought perhaps you could t- uh, take us through your your darkest hour, uh, your your lowest moment in this industry. Um, lowest moment in the industry. Uh, I guess was last year. I mean, this is, you know, I've my career has been rebuilt over the last 8 years. Uh prior to that, I was a I was a pretty terrible drug addict and um and my life had spun out of control, but before the spinning out of control thing, I was doing good things. I I I had this band and we got on that 70s show as the prom band and did some original music for the show and then then a month later we're asked to do the same thing for third rock from the sun and we were backing up william shatner and then i started getting asked to sing tv theme songs i sang the the song uh for that 80s show very short-lived um pilot uh, on Fox that, you know, didn't make it past three or four episodes, I think. And, um, I sang the theme song to another show that lasted about a year on the WB called off center. And then my life started to spin out of control and I ended up homeless on skid row in downtown LA, uh, ended up in my boxers just in nothing with nothing with my family close by, you know, they, they're all based here in Los Angeles. So, you know, everybody was just letting me, you know, had let me go, and and that's exactly what, you know, I needed was just to find my own way back, and I was lucky and got a, a real, real, um, uh, an amazing, miraculous sort of uh, handout of a, of a complete stranger to load me into this van that happened to be going up to, to uh, a state-funded rehabilitation program and so I, I I've slowly just from scratch um, getting rid of all of those old contacts that I had you know who had completely forgot about you I mean if you if you stand still in this industry for a year you know you're you're really lucky if you're able to you know 
to dive back in and have any sort of name for yourself. There's a momentum that, that people sort of fear, you know, put the fear into you about. And so I, I, um, I started, I, I got really lucky. Um, about three months after I got off of the streets, uh, somebody found me who was a fan of that band that was on those TV shows. And uh, he, through a couple degrees of separation, found me and asked me if I'd start writing cues for trailers, uh, namely romantic comedy trailers. And so I took a stab at it, had no idea how to do it, and learned the process and happened to be on a disc, my very first disc, that ended up being one of the most successful romantic comedy uh, discs of all time for for editing houses and and as far as uh, revenue stream so that i got really lucky there and then from there you know i've started to just do cues and be a behind the scenes guy rather than trying to be a rock star and and uh and through doing that i got to go a few years later um i got to go to london to do a, a really big record so like three years almost to the day uh off getting getting off of Skid Row, I was in London at George Martin's studio, working with the London uh, Studio Orchestra, this huge 52-piece orchestra that had just played on the Beatles' Love record. Holy cow, so it took three years to uh, build up from, from Skid Row to, you know, London, which is one of the biggest, most famous orchestras in the world. What was the uh, the rate of decline, actually, to, to get to Skid Row? Um, it was a pretty slow dive. Uh, it got m- gradually more and more isolated. Um, I ended up being in some bands that were signed as well, and then I left those bands and just sort of isolated myself for the last year before I ended up on Skid Row. So I was like in my house, and I didn't really go anywhere um, except for to for the acquiring of more, you know, drugs. And however that came about. When was the uh, defining moment that your family realized they could no longer support or? or help you down this path? You know what? There was a defining moment, but as any good drug addict would do, he would push past that defining moment and, and you know, really have to find his own. And right. me, I mean, it was like uh, a few weeks um, before I got off Skid Row, I, I, was, I was still employed. I had a place to live. I was living, I was actually a nanny. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really ridiculous story. Um, the, I was and somebody trusted me with their kids, and it's ridiculous now. I can laugh at it because nobody got hurt, but you know, obviously, people could have. Like, I was not attentive to the kids, and I was only attentive to my needs. And uh, and the defining moment was having the the covers pulled on my whole operation. And both my parents had been divorced for at that time over twenty years. Walked in the room, and I knew, you know, I knew it was time to to go with them and to leave this life behind but still even beyond that point the drugs had a hold of me so so hard that that uh that even with my sort of white light you know moment of realizing that the jig was up uh i still managed to get myself into trouble and and uh and and that's what ended me up on skid row is that you know past the point of my parents wanting to help me and driving me to different places to see if i qualified to get in and I and I didn't, uh, you know, that nagging, uh, you need to, you have to get high or else you'll die thing that my head used to tell me um, uh, appeared. And so when it did, I, I jumped, jumped out of a, you know, 
jumped out of a car basically and and uh, went downtown where I knew where the drugs were and just walked down there like a zombie for a few weeks. And the defining moment really was falling asleep on the street one night in front of, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I woke up and there's this van in front of me and uh, and a line of gentlemen getting getting into this van, a homeless gentleman. And, uh, you know, the, the, the driver of the van got out and he walked up to me and he asked me if I, if, uh, if I wanted to get in the van. I, and I said, where are you going? He said, it's a, it's a rehab and I think you'll qualify. And I said, are there any girls there? And he said, no, there aren't any girls there, but there's a new way of life. And, and I, I sat there for moments and weighed my options, if you can believe it, all, you know half naked on Skid Row, I was thinking, oh, do I really want to do this? Rehab, I heard it's tough. I had nothing, you know? But that's how crazy I was. Oh. And so, you know, I just said yes. And ever since then, I've basically just been saying yes to life. And, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything perfectly, but uh, there's certainly a progression in not only my career, but my, but my, uh, my, my, my thought life, my relationships with other people, um, you know, and now I'm a father of two and I'm married and, and, uh, you know, and I work in this industry and I think the people that I work with, um, treasure our relationships and, and as I do theirs. So it's just Holy a, God. it's a really, really, you know, it's a really great thing. Yeah. No kidding. Um, has any of your, music especially with your your feature film work has, has any of your music sort of dived into the sort of memory bank uh in order to to help tell the, your your stories you know this last project that i did I, I just you know i'm still enjoying actually a bit of the 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 success of this film it's my first full-length score and i also music supervised it and i in music supervising it i used uh artists that i worked with over 2000, the course of 2010. Any record that I produced, uh, any artist that I developed, um, I used their songs in the soundtrack um, side by side with my, my original score. And the film's called Crime After Crime. It ended up being an official Sundance selection this year in 2011, and, and it got acquired by OWN, by Oprah's uh, new network, and it's going to debut there in November. And it's actually out in theaters now, and uh, it's a film about a woman who is wrongfully imprisoned for, for uh, when when the story when when the story starts, it's she had been in prison for 20 years, and it just kind of follows this woman uh, getting some help from extraordinary places, from extraordinary people, uh, different backgrounds, different colors, uh, these people working for free to try and to to try and free her and get her out of there. And so when I saw this film. You know, I hadn't really considered myself a storyteller, you know, um, up until this point, outside of the the, the book that I, uh, the, the children's book that I talked about earlier. But um, I knew that I had to tell her story, and I had to do it. This woman, Deborah Piegler, um, the subject of crime after crime. I had to tell her story, but I had to do it in a way that didn't get in the way of the story. So. It's a really, it was a, an interesting learning process. Normally, I'm the guy that's called to find the, the right piece of music for the right scene, and uh, you know, and I, I usually have these things either ready or can create them right off the bat. But to, to tell a whole story was a, was a, it was it was it was a new thing, and you know, trying to figure out like the characters in the in 
in the film, like it had to be an instrument that I was playing, you know, and, and, you know, nobody was a saxophone, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you really had to figure out which instrument was right for each person and then, and then write something that went along with it. And lucky for me, I just let the, the, uh, the film do the, the main talking and just tried to not get in the way, but also just enhance what you were watching. And some of the greatest comments I get now from people who see the film are, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry. I was so into the film that I didn't pay attention to the music. And that to me is like a high compliment. You know, and for a film like this, a documentary that that uh, is truly powerful and moving, you you know, you kind of don't want people walking away talking about the music. You want it to be an afterthought, if anything. And 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 uh, you know, to me, that's a great success. No, that's that, that's amazing. Uh, I'm personally curious, what was your process for choosing instruments for each character? Can you take me through that? Well, it's really I, I don't want to take full credit for it because it, you know it was a learning process that both I and the director went went on together this this journey, if you will. I hate using that because <laughs> it gets used so much. Uh, but this you know this time that we spent making this film, it was really a learning experience for both of us. And 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 uh, you know he would talk about how he really wanted each person to be represented by an instrument. And so I would already have this music created and then I'd have to get creative and, and go, well, you know what, that, that line that I wrote, that, you know, that melody, I believe that it's good for this piece, but I don't think that it's, it's, it's coming out in that saxophone. I think it should be maybe a dobro guitar or whatever. And, and we would just in the final stages before submission to Sundance, that's what we would do is we would, you know, really hunker down and figure out if 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 uh, if if each each person was represented well by the by the instrument. So so it wasn't something that came inspirational to me at all. Like the the music definitely did. I, I I'm not a guy. I, I'm actually quite quite um quite blown away by the by how I write because uh, you know most people traditionally at least you know they watch and they score to it. I I never actually write music outside of the studio when i'm called to do a film or whatever it may be i don't think about it ahead of time i just show up and then i sit down in front of the instrument and i start to play and and that's how it's been um uh, you know doing these these few films that i've worked on it's just just been like well what am i feeling about this right now and 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 nothing else really matters and so I don't ever practice at home, I don't play at home, I don't record at home or anywhere else. I just go into the studio and let the inspiration hit right then and there. Was there a uh, particular scene in Crime After Crime or a moment in that film that uh, personally you could attach yourself to, that, that you just felt emotionally attached to the moment and you knew exactly how to how to tackle it? Well, yeah, I was lucky because I... I'd... I had worked just before working on this movie. I had produced this girl named Stephanie Hosman and uh, I produced her debut record. And there's a song on there that was so powerful um, in my own life. Like it had meaning in my own life that, that when I saw this film and I saw the scene, I knew that it was going to be perfect for it, but we just had to take out the vocals. And, and so there was, there's many moments like that where the music supervisor side of me was like, you know, knew my catalog so well and the artists that I worked with and their material that I could just go, oh, that song's going to be great for this. But as far as writing, um, there was, there's, 
you know, telling the backstory of of how Deborah got in prison um, was the big deal. Was the big one to actually, I, I think, to get because you know, there, you you can't have when you're telling stories of abuse and and murder and all these you know all these different things. Like you can't you you really have to be specific. You know, uh, and it has to feel natural, and it cannot in any way take away from from these people. You know, telling what's real and authentic to them. So, uh, I think in telling the backstory, there were there were moments where it was rather than thinking about it, which I, I'd like to do over and analyze things. Like instead of doing that, I just sat down at the piano, and this piece came out, and and I think it's called backstory um, in the credits. So. Um, that one was one that I had to get, and 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 there's you know some good stuff that happens later on down down the road in the film that you know I knew I had to get as well, and and uh, and you know the pieces just 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 happen to show up. I think we've already spoken about this a little bit, but uh, if there was a, a particular event or, or moment in your life that uh, you think would make a, a great movie, what which moment would that be for you, and and which director would you choose to to tackle it? Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I did touch upon it. I mean, I think you know there was there was moments when I was down on downtown. And I was walking around, and I was with all those people, and I was seeing families out on the street, like, braiding each other's hair. I was seeing other zombies like me walking around. Um, and and there was a moment where I had actually, I had realized how bad things were, but at the same time, I also saw, like, how, I saw that there was hope. And there was a moment where I had taken, I had gotten uh, some methadone, to calm down my heroin addiction withdrawal. And uh, I had gotten some methadone, and I had taken it, and I was walking down on Skid Row, and I was with all these people, and I sort of had an outer body experience, if you will. Like, I, I really did. Like, I, I, I was able to take myself out of, of this situation and kind of have a bird's-eye view of it and go, this isn't where you're supposed to be, you know? And so it was like almost like my spirit was hovering above my body, while I was standing in line to see if I could get a bed that night at the rescue mission. And, hmm. and I was standing in line with all these other folks who are all these other hopefuls. And, uh, you know, and I had this experience going like, Hey man, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. And really none of us do that are down there. But, but, you know, speaking from my own experience, I, you, you don't belong here and, and, and you got to get out of here. You got to do the right thing. And, and I don't know if there was surrender or whatever there was to be able to not get into that place that night and then end up on the street and then have that van be there the next day. But, you know, if it, if I could have anyone direct it, it would probably be Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, because he tells stories like that really, really well. I mean, because there's a bit of comedy to it and there's there's this dark, dark, you know, thing going on as well. And, and uh, you know, I think that he could capture it really well. Well, uh, hopefully he listens to this. And, uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so we've come to that part of the show where you uh, tell us a little bit about the project that you're currently working on. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. It's a story of John Lennon's life. It's basically a metaphorical autobiography on John Lennon's life as told through a tiger growing up in the jungle. And it, from start to finish. And it has all of the... it it It's sort of like Bambi 
meets where the wild things are as far as like a children's story. I mean, it, it deals with real issues, the real issues that John Lennon dealt with from life to death. Um, but it does it in a way that's palatable for children. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it goes through everything from his childhood all the way up to meeting the Beatles to breaking away from them to, you know, and all told through these jungle creatures who... Oddly enough, their lives really similarly match the characters that they're they're paired with, the animals that they're paired with. And I, and I wrote this story to also bring the attention to the fact that these an, animals are endangered and they're on the verge of extinction uh, due to poaching. Mm-hmm. And so there's an element of that in there. Um, and I was able to get the book to Yoko's uh, lawyer and in Yoko's hands, and I got basic permission to to create this book and you know and to go through the process with them. And so that's where I'm at now with it. That's sort of the biggest deal. I mean, I'm I'm continuing to do you know film projects and 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 continuing to still work with artists. That's just a mainstay now at this point my career but um the big deal is this book and the book you know going on to do as much as you know i i picture it at starbucks you know who wouldn't pick up this book and want to introduce their children to one of their heroes uh and tell the story of the beatles as well um all doing it uh in a way that uh is cleverly disguised you know as uh as these animals that they can get into and then also learning about these animals and i'm at the stage now where i'm trying to find uh, a publisher and and finding the right publisher i know it took uh rowling i i think it took her like five years or something like that. i've been reading up on it but it, it was really like the very last publisher that took a chance on the harry potter stuff and so I'm I'm kind of hoping that you know because I have shopped it around a little bit and people who don't know uh, who aren't real true Beatle fans like I need to find the Beatle fan, especially the John Lennon historian uh, publisher really who's just going to get it right off you know and who's going to get it right off the bat. Uh, this, is, this is a bit of a no-brainer project. I mean, especially when you have like when I've gotten it to the Lennon estate and and they're really curious about it. Like I've had a, uh, I've had many back and forths with I mean like a, at least a dozen back and forths in emails with uh with um Yoko Ono's lawyer and I've spoken with him on the phone and I've I've inquired into whether or not she would write a preface to the book and they asked what my what my my date was, what my cutoff date was for for her to do that. And you know, I said, "Well, I'm not, you know, I don't have one yet, you know. Uh, so anyway, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest there, and and um, you know, to the right person, it's just going to make sense, and they're going to take mm-hmm. what I what I believe to be a calculated risk. Yeah, no, of course, it's. Um, I, I hope I hope it does well. It sounds Thank it sounds you. amazing. Thanks. Um, so one final question, sure. and then we're going to sadly let you go. But it's. Uh, this also may be a bit of a no-brainer, but if you had to do street performing to raise money for your project, what kind of performance would it be? You know, that's a good question. Um, um, well, you know, they're doing these, you know, the story came to me in a meditation. And, you know, n- normally things don't come to me in meditation except for stuff that I want to get rid of. But this idea came... Um, the idea came to write the book, and my son's name is Tiger Lennon Carpenter. Like, and we decided we were going to name him Tiger Lennon. My mother drew this beautiful art 
this cover art. And then the next day after she showed us this art, I went into meditation. I had a regular practice at the time. And, and, uh, this, this concept for this book came and I sat down and I hadn't, I had only been a musician and a, and a, you know, up until that point, but I, I came out of this meditation and sat down at this desk and 40 minutes later I had this book and really nothing has changed much since maybe a couple lines have been changed since I wrote the book. Um, but, uh, since it came in a meditation, they're doing these meditation mobs now. I don't know if you're following any of that but you know like flash mobs people are showing up in places uh in highly populated places um like the grove here in la or or you know in different places around the world and just people are meditating that's amazing yeah it's really amazing it's 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 amazing to hear and to think about it's like oh wow that's kind of neat and then but if you see pictures of it there's like children that are sitting there trying to quiet their mind trying to to you know um to broaden their consciousness it's a beautiful thing and if somehow since the story came to me in that way i would i would like to do it in in a similar way that 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 uh, those folks are doing that you know um just invoking the spirit invoking uh the the sources of nature and 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 the divine so finding a way to do it that way uh through street performance and with that great answer we said goodbye to mr jamie carpenter Hope you dug the podcast and the artist. If you'd like to check out the artist's work, please visit the website www.auroralightworks.blogspot.com. That's www.auralightworks.blogspot.com. Thank you so much for listening, and my name is Lawrence Cohen, and we'll see you next week.